Hello, Mage fans, and welcome to Mage the Podcast, the podcast that works hard towards ascension so you don't have to. I'm your host, Adam Simpson. I'm joined today by Terry Robinson, and we are going to be bringing you another episode of Tomes of Magic, where we discuss Iteration X. And uh, I, I took issue with uh, Terry today, who sat down in front of his camera with a nice cup of coffee, and I said, Terry, you cannot medicate yourself to get started. That's progenitors. We're working on Iteration X today. And he said, Adam, this is a tool that helps me start my mornings. I said, ah. It's all in the conceptual framework when you're a mage fan. So, Terry, how are you doing today? One, I drink decaf because I'm that cool, and it's mostly a thermal thing. And I wasn't quite awake, and I was cold, so I took the Iteration X route, and I'm currently sitting on a Pentium 4. They had a total power draw of like 170 watts or something. Cats love them. So uh, I've chosen that to, uh, to stay in in, in scheme and because I'm not quite awake yet I jabbed myself with a mechanical pencil so I think but you got uh, your bases covered yeah well are there any uh, announcements uh, this week yeah actually blank um so let's do the rundown of the book for iteration x revised clocks in at 100 pages uh, we're still in the year 2001 we have uh, two authors who brought this to us Alex Williams and John Sneed and I'm ready for a walkthrough of the book. There is a prelude. The prelude gives us a whole bunch of snippets of various people within Iteration X, or I should say Iteration 10, we'll get to that later, of a whole bunch of military recruits in armor and another person who's being hired by a company and a different person who's a former virtual adept who has converted to being part of the good guys, which is to say the technocracy, apparently. And you're like, what? There's a virtual adept? And with that, we get the introduction. So the introduction, the first word of the introduction is just the word technology followed by a period. If you had just repeated that throughout the entire book and replaced it with the word tool, you would have gotten this book, more or less. So I appreciated that they told you who they were right up front. But it tries to introduce a philosophy for Iteration X. And it says there is a self and there is a world around you. You start off with very limited ways of manipulating the world around you until you build tools. And tools are things that let you change the world. The goal of Iteration X is to make the barrier between self and tool and by extension the world as thin as possible. But the question is, in the process of doing that, have they replaced the goal of changing the world with the goal of having the best tools? I say that's a stupid question because the goal in life is to have the best stuff, but that's neither here nor there. It then goes on to talk about the theme and the mood of the book, the theme of the book being human empowerment. Other groups focus on the why. The goal of Iteration X is to provide concrete, useful products. And I'm like, okay, you're getting bound to brass tacks. I appreciate this. Their fundamental flaw, though, is their lack of understanding of consequences, and that can lead to disempowerment. If you create something new that ultimately helps people in the short term but becomes problematic in the long term, it's probably a bad thing. The quest of the iterators to make humanity better, however, they haven't found a tool to tell them what is better for humanity, which just, again, sounds like a failure because they make artificial intelligences. And you figure you would make one to be like, hey, box, what should we do for the humans? And the box is like, kill them all. Yes, kill them all. And you're like, that seems like a, that seems like genocide box. The box is like, Nope. And they're like, okay, let's do it with ruthless efficiency. The mood of the book is the search for intelligent life, that they have spent very little time exploring their inner structure compared to the outer structure of the world, and a growing number of people within the organization are asking why. And this is a group who finds that freedom terrifying. And I think that is one of the most interesting narrative points of it, to be like, we do things with ruthless efficiency. What happens when a group that does things with ruthless efficiency turns inward. That is something that is partially explored throughout the rest of the book. One of my New Year's resolutions was to make these history chapters shorter, and I'm going to see if I can do that. Chapter one is entitled Cycle One, the header, and goes through a history of Iteration X. It starts in ancient times, and they're like, we track our history back to the first year tool users. We rivaled the dream speakers, which I kind of like as an idea that you have like the techiest technology people and the non-technologiest non-technology people who started at the same time. There's like, you're not so different, you or I. And then they're like, oh wait, no, we are we are entirely different. They say the, the, the first two things that people brought with them were a rock 
to hit things and a torch to explore caves. And once they explored the cave, they started living in them and they're like, da 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 da, a tool. They claim Imhotep, the builder of the pyramids and an ancient Egyptian doctor, is one of their early members, as well as Daedalus and a whole bunch of other Greek thinkers and creators. Uh, they talk about how one of their historical legs was in China, where the benefits of having stable or consistent leadership between the years 1100 and 250 BCE allowed for the advancement of science and technology, and that Confucius advocated for the subdual of emotion, but not its complete removal. And that was the first time where I'm like, ah, I see, they're trying to... They're trying to rehabilitate their their image a little bit. Uh, since this is a revised book, we get a whole bunch of information on the Middle East. They mention that Al-Khwazarimi, Middle Eastern thinker uh, who the West knows knows as Algorithmi, which we get the word algorithm from. They also claim membership of him as well as uh, Kalanikos, the inventor of Greek fire. And they, they were big on Byzantium as an idea that understanding was sacred, that the Mongol horde messed up all that they had been doing, but it brought in some new technology and understanding as the the, the West had kind of fallen into a failure to advance for several centuries during the quote-unquote Dark Ages. In the 1400s, after the convention of the White Tower, they, they started their own side group, and they really liked Copernicus because they're like, oh man, by making humans not so important, that makes it way easier for us to turn them into mechs. Their big leap forward occurred in the 1800s, where infrastructure was kind of the big thing that they were pushing. That the easiest way to make everything more efficient was to create large-scale systems that gave people access to resources to better use their time and human capabilities. Uh, they were proud that biology was no longer the driver of human destiny, and they cite the Civil War as being a great testing ground for prostheses, which I thought was interesting. They kind of do the thing where they're like, this was the biggest war of the 1800s. I'm like, no, nah, there were like five that were bigger than that, at least, just putting that out there. But it also implies that there were like clockwork soldiers running around during the Civil War. And I think that's kind of cool, where they talk about like, ah, our best and our greatest prostheses. The X in its name was the 10th iteration of hardware and software of the computer to turn the computer into the computer. This is an audio medium, so you can't see how I took the C in computer and turned it from a lowercase C to a capital C, but uh, that is the notional self-aware computer that up until the Avatar Storm kind of ran the convention. And that X in its name is actually a 10, and iteration 10 is the dumbest convention name ever. It sounds like a failed Pepsi product. In fact, in the second edition book, Adam and I were talking about this, and it's like, they won't reveal the iteration that resulted in self-awareness for fear that others will copy it. And in this book, they're like, hey, everyone, it took us exactly 10 tries. Isn't that cool? This is in no way secret. I'm like, ah. Um, <laughs> the As we get more and more information about the reorganization of the order of reason, into the technocracy, they mentioned that before the great reorganization under Queen Victoria, that groups didn't really trade information. And that this was the late 19th century was pretty well the first time that the different silos within the technocracy traded information. And I could really see the explosion of success that they purportedly had through the first half of the 20th century and the late 19th century being born of that, that you had progenitors and iterators cooperating on things for the first time. They said that the analytical reckoners left in 1900 along with their Electrodyne engineers and the analytical reckoners became the virtual adepts. So that's just wrong or a major retcon. There are a bunch of facts in this book that are a little bit off. Um, they also present the incident with Tsar Vargo in an interesting way where they say, oh, this, this guy was our continual nemesis. So from their point of view, they were the pulp action heroes trying to fend off Tsar Vargo meddling in mortal affairs. And I'm like, that's cool. I can get behind that. Zar Vargo being the, the character that in 1918 or 1917 appeared above the world capitals with his uh, fleet of ether ships who said, you need to stop making war. And to make you stop having war, I'm going to point large guns at you, um, which has historically been one way of creating peace, who was eventually taken down, who you have this tableau of these ether ships being attacked by like human biplanes and like people throwing sticks with with points at the end of it and him just being like, fool, I have the technology of the future of the past and you can't do anything to me until the progenitors are like, hmm, this guy doesn't like killing people. Let's just launch a whole bunch of goons into the sky at him. And he's like, ah, bodies. And he fled to the Umbra. So great moments in mage history. And people say mage continuity is complicated. They also dropped two bombs, in my opinion, speaking of World War II. One, Leslie Groves may have been a member of the NWO. 
awesome. Leslie Groves was the uh, army attache that was in charge of the uh, Manhattan Engineering Division, which most people know as the Manhattan Project. And he was known for not being uh, humble. When asked, he's like, can you build an atomic weapon? He's like, if anyone can, it's me. (laughs) I'm like, and they're like, what do you know about nuclear weapons? He's like, nothing, but I found a whole bunch of smart people. And I'm like, oh man, that's the kind of American brashness I miss sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) And they also mentioned that the virtual adepts turned on Alan Turing for being gay. So I'm like, okay, so we've got our first case of documented homophobia within the traditions. Great. Thanks. And then we get to the modern era and it kind of reiterates the same questions of like, what should we do with our lives? And then it moves on to, to locations. When it comes to history, um, first off, as I was reading through this book, it, it just reminded me yet again. Can I just say I'll be really happy when I can pick up a mage book and not get a history of the world according to mages? I, I've had so many mage history. And specifically that type of mage. Yeah, I mean, just book after book after book. Even we've been reading a lot of books lately that aren't even convention or tradition books. And here's yet again the history of the world for mages. And it's like... I was surprised how this, in this history section, it it seemed to have like a reactionary, almost insecure tone. It's like the historian was saying again and again, come at me, bro. Come on. Come on. I dare you to, you know, disprove this. I dare you to support these other guys I don't like. It's like, wow, this is... This is a, like a hostile history. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, Adversarial history. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. I thought it was interesting that uh, Autochthonia is no longer a fascinating machine realm. Now it was an, a large, empty space, a large, empty realm, where they just happened to discover that machines work unusually well. And so they said, well, if machines work unusually well here, let's come in here, set up machines, and see what we can do. And so... That was a very different take on Autochthonia from what we got in the first two editions of Mage. At first, I was surprised by how the historian said, oh, yeah, those, those guys who lived in Autochthonia and were the, you know, previously were the leaders of our convention and listened to the computer with a capital C, that was actually just some offshoot uh, wacko group that we called the Cult of the Machines. And we, you know what, we sent them to Autochthonia cause, to get rid of them because they were annoying and we yep. just wanted them very far away. We gave and them so all wedges like, okay. and kicked them into space. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. basically. It's like, okay, that is a really, really different take. Then as you continue to read the book, it becomes clear that this doesn't seem to actually be the case in Major Vise. It seems to be that, uh, no, they, they really were the leaders of the convention, but now they're trying to make it look like it was less than it was so that they can feel better about themselves. And so understandable how someone would want to put a, a, a nicer gloss on their past. However, from what I have been reading of revised edition books, it seems to kind of run counter to one of the minor themes of revised edition, which was the when older men led all the factions of mages they were dishonest and underhanded and now that they're gone we have the young blood and they're open and honest and things are so much better now and it's like okay okay, if that's one of the themes you want to run with go ahead but in this book it's like kind of the opposite of that it's like we're the young blood and we're leading it now and we're going to cover up the past and tell ourselves um conciliatory lies and and feel better about things that we don't want to face it's like well okay that that's really in opposition of this theme of revised edition. But uh, okay, if that's if, that w- if that's what you want to do, then I guess we'll go with that. Yeah, Autochthonia gets a bit of a facelift. This, the next part of this chapter are some locations, and it talks about a military base in Darwin, Australia, a research facility in Lake Arthur, another one in Socorro Flats, New Mexico, talking about the hypertech that they do and the prostheses that they work on and so on. But Autochthonia had been previously introduced, as Adam said, as the machine realm, that it was touching the, in werewolf cosmos, what would be the shenty of of the weaver so in the near umbra there was this perfect mechanical planet and where things ran better than expected and it was just full of technology and so on the reason that this realm existed was a large spirit of an entity sometimes called the computer or in one book is listed as the spirit of tool use as humanity gains the ability to use more and more technological advice devices it becomes more potent wakes and then coalesces in this space now this book gives it an alternative history where it explicitly ties it to exalted this is one of our first ties between those two worlds i think the first one would have been the akashiana book which says in a world before this world autochthonia existed as the wounded prometheus cast off from that creation and if you're familiar with the exalted cosmology 
uh, Autochthonia was one of the primordials who ultimately created the Exalts, but knew that the Exalt War was going to come and just kind of pieced off into space and filled his giant machine body with a whole bunch of people to keep him operational and kind of a, to serve as a combination space continent lifeboat. It's pretty interesting, but it's one of the explicit ties that were made in Revise to early Exalted, which again, later they're like, I don't know, there's nothing similar between these two. What are you talking about? I like the idea of the machine cult, that there are the hardliners within Iteration X who are like, oh, no, 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 God is in the machine. I think it is being hyperbolic when they say, oh yeah, we put all the the space nerds in the machine box. Um, But Autochthony is essentially this artificial ecosystem that they have let run. They also mentioned, though, that it's a bad place to do research because technology doesn't transfer back. If you're in a realm where everything runs at 100% efficiency, it's really hard to know what works and what doesn't because everything supernaturally works well. That doesn't make sense. You couldn't actually do useful research here. They just kind of let the more purist, I don't want to say crazy, but the more old school iterators there. But as Adam said, they they kind of downplay it. So if in your game, that is still is going to be the core of Iteration X regardless, and that's their real power source, that's fine. We get a little bit of information on their metaphysics and their philosophy. They mention that deism is largely accepted. The idea that there was a creator who set up the universe, hit the play button or hit go or kick the thing into gear and then walked away. And this fits surprisingly well with the World of Darkness cosmology that often stipulates that God created the universe and then walked away. The difference is the universe isn't perfect, so it's slowly winding down until we get to the end times. But I thought that was a surprisingly positive twist on what is common revised cosmology. They asked the question, though, of what is the liberation borne by the tools that they create? That the time motion managers believe that cooperation will unleash humanity. The biomechanics groups believe that they are being held back by biological flaws. The statisticians are just trying to make sense of everything. And there's an internal division over whether or not technology should be adapted to the shortcomings of each person or it should wholesale replace it. Uh, Should we use it to help everyone get to a baseline or should we use it to try and get beyond that? The traditional line of Iteration X turned everyone into an ant colony and forced hyper-specialization. And hyper-specialization makes it harder to adapt. It goes through its view of the other groups. And another thing that happens in Revised, the sections on what the other groups are like are generally not just each group shitting on every other group, which I kind of appreciate where, where they try and make it a compliment sandwich where it's like, we like this thing about it. They're fundamentally flawed in this way, but we really like this thing about it, but they, they make great canapes or something like that. Um, they appreciate the new world order for doing the boring stuff. And they talk about how vital it is that the NWO makes sure that everyone is going through continuing education, which at various points throughout revise, the technocracy is no, says, no, this is the real reason that we're winning, that everyone is always being up to date. And then like, you're waiting for a little thing to say, like stay in school kids. And then they show a guy, like and then the show like John Courage giving you the thumbs up or something like while holding a spelling test or something NWO and the uh, statisticians have some sort have some crossover and they tend to have a fair bit of back and forth there's a fight between the old school iteration X purists and the old school progenitors of the biological versus the mechanical which I I just think is fun and that they appreciate that the syndicate advances the technological paradigm and the syndicate tends to be the group that reigns them in either because the consensus isn't ready, the masses are not ready, or because what they want to do is just too darn expensive. And then they turn their eyes on the traditions. And this is where the shit talking starts. One, they talk about the dream speakers and they're like, well, they're not so different, you and I, except for the part where we're completely different. And they even have the line where it's like, it's hard not to like these guys. Hermetics and the iterators can't both win. I like as an idea to point out. They point out that some groups can coexist with Iteration X just because their goals are so orthogonal to one another, but the Hermetics and the iterators are pointed very much in their minds in the opposite directions. They mention, and this is this is one of those juicy little lines that can create entire chronicles where it says, if the order of reason hadn't been so hard line against mysticism when they formed, the Hermetics could have joined. Yes, <laughs> I want to see that game. They also have a hatred for the Society of Ether. Uh, because they're like, they're not doing science. They're all whack jobs. And I'm like, yeah, they kind of are. <laughs> There's a section at the end where they talk about all the other night folk that they encounter. And these are pretty straightforward. Except for, I love the part where he's like, vampires, super flammable. And it tells the story of a guy in an Allenson hard suit who just goes through looking for something, just wiping the floor with him. And I'm like, yep, that's my technocracy. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Every once in a while, they get to be brutally efficient and just destroy an entire coterie. And that brings us to the end of chapter one. Did you have any thoughts on the uh, the rest of cycle one? Well, for the rest of cycle one, yeah, I did have a few points. Uh, when I got to the philosophy section, they, they said this is the, we're going to talk now about the philosophy of iteration X. I felt like that was a real letdown. At one point, they even said, yeah, go look at a science book. <laughs> yeah. And, and, yeah, that's us. I'm like, no, 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 no. Just stare at it's it. It's not very well done. I Like Terry, I, I enjoyed seeing um, less of the infighting between conventions, although there were a lot of things I liked about uh, earlier portrayals of the technocracy in the first two editions of Mage. One of the things I didn't like very much was they tried to play up the drama by saying that the conventions were at each other's throats all the time and always planning to topple each other. And I, I thought that was stretching things too far. And here we have uh, conventions who are like, hey, we, we see these uh, strengths between us and we work together on these things and we're, we're not majorly dissatisfied that they exist. And it's like, okay, that, that is a refreshing change. This is something I can, I can get behind. Looking through the opinions of uh, traditions and other mages, I was really surprised when it came to the Iteration X opinions on the Hollow Ones. Here is a group with very different lifestyles, philosophies, etc., and, and here the iterator is saying, oh, we like the hollow ones. They're good guys. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense to me. I, I cannot see where this one's coming from. <laughs> but... The first thing it does is it goes through the roles within the organization. We've talked about these before, but it's short, so why not go over it again? The bottom level you have are the proles, and they make an aside. They're like, we should probably stop using that term. I like the idea that it's like the bottom level of our organization are the dumb idiots who don't know any better, and that's like on all of their name tags or something like that. They're like, I think they're starting to catch on. That the the grunts do work are stable but untalented and it also indicates that there are two structures there is the military structure and then there is the research and management structure and that this level are they're known as soldiers and they're quite capable the bottom end of their organization is generally the top end of mortal organizations and that i liked because in the first book they're like the proles are almost literally Orwellian proles. They're like window-licking knuckle-draggers who just go around and beat up people. And they're like, no, 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 no. Our worst soldier is among the best that the unawakened world has to offer. And I'm like, yep, that's my technocracy. Above that, you have the armatures. Uh, they have some leeway. The combat-savvy ones are considered officers. They tend to be the top level of what a tradition mage would likely encounter. I think it's super good for a book to spell out that kind of stuff. What a tradition cabal would likely encounter. They're aware of the idea that something like magic may exist, and the scientific ones tend to specialize. Above that, you have the comptrollers who are, or controllers who oversee task distribution. They oversee training. And all of the controllers combined are more or less the management structure of iteration X. They are aware of what they're doing. They tend to be a little bit more distant because they're they're more involved in planning and operations. And they mentioned that there was previously two other things above that. One was control and one was the computer and that they were given equal weight. This to me is a retcon because the sense I got in previous things was that the computer generally received priority over what control said or or the computer interpreted it, uh, but that's just a feeling that both of those are very smart but out of touch. And it does a good job to say having that kind of view on the Ascension War is hard. It's it's hard to not be out of touch with it. And they make sides about periodically going into the field, but uh, the difficulties of people not embracing modern technology can make that somewhat difficult, especially when you're armed to the gills with cybernetics from two centuries from now. They talk about the three things they need from recruits being discipline, education, and camaraderie. And it gives a peek inside of what life within the technocracy is, which I find interesting because even in Guide to the Technocracy, I don't feel like we got a lot of this information. They talk about few people take long vacation. There's really no retirement unless you're in the military branch and something happens. They are well taken care of. People who don't pan out within Iteration X are nudged back into mundane careers. And it's kind of interesting because it suggests that the first two rungs, that the armatures even may not be entirely aware of what's going on. So even at a comparatively high level, someone can be dumped back into the mortal world more or less without too much damage. They do make mention that the Hitmark program has been largely phased out, but if a soldier snaps, they can still become a hit mark if they are too unstable to retire. Politics within it 
within the organization do exist, but it is mostly the byproduct of ruthlessly efficient, highly passionate people advocating for their projects and believing each one is the best project. It's not the kind of political backstabbing or personal machinations that you may come to associate with being in Duizatep or something like that. They issued a, a heck of a thing where they're like, the fundamental problem with the traditions is they're not really committed to what they're doing. They refuse to work with each other and they refuse to put in the work. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got them. There is an aside about the DEI, which is the Digital Enhancement Interface, which was the implant that was put in all f previous iterators where it would destroy like the morality center of the brain, but give you a really big brain computer. And now, though, the uptake rate for that has dropped below 50%. And with the introduction of the ADEI, which doesn't require so much destruction of your moral core, and that the progenitors have advanced neuroregenerative techniques to restore the excised portion of the brain stems that they're not all amoral monsters. I'm going to I'm going to give that one a thumbs up. That there are other alternatives that you can have that some people just opt to have like a risk computer with them at all times, but there are still advantages to getting this. But there are still 250-year-old iteration X masters who wanted their students to have no compunctions about following out semi-questionable directives and that was later supported by the computer. So I thought that was a, an interesting thing that you're going to have this mix of people within the convention that you will still have an old guard that may think that that is the right way to do it. And should you run an Iteration X Chronicle, I think that's a, an interesting thing. The next section is on the groups, the, the methodologies within it. Adam, can you tell us about the methodologies? All right. Uh, in this, we have four methodologies. In the past, uh, there were three. Uh, we start off with the statisticians. This methodology gathers data, organizes it, and uses it to create simulations to understand the present and predict the future. Many of the convention's high-level leaders are statisticians. We have the time motion managers. In the past, this group made weapons, vehicles, computers, and developed systems so that groups of people could work and use machines efficiently, like factories or modern companies. Now they focus on computing and managing large systems efficiently. Many low-level leaders in the convention belong to this group. We have the biomechanics, the specialists in cybernetic implants, prosthetics, and mechanical augmentation of the human body. In the past, they focused on weapons, but now are devoted to technologies that more directly benefit the patient. And last, we have macro technicians, new in this book. Starting in 2000, this methodology gathered the engineers, chemists, and architects. Pro uh, they produced um, powered armor suits, weapons, vehicles, and operate the teams that use them in the field. Members of this group usually eschew cybernetic enhancements of any kind. And so that is our four methodologies within the convention. The last section within this chapter is kind of a so why section. It talks about the technologies that they're working on. They're being like, yeah, we're making advances in engineering and plasma cannons and hard suits and such, which was kind of dull. But they like the idea of tools because it allows for human autonomy, which is kind of interesting from a group that is also so dedicated to get people to work together. But they also bring back the idea that every group thinks that every other group is just thinking and not doing. I feel like literally every description of every convention is like, we're the ones who do the real work. It's kind of interesting in that we don't get the rest of the convention books until literally after Ascension is released, that <laughs> that with the iterators, they kind of get the last word. Well, there were a lot of things in, in Chapter 2. Uh, first off, I can't help but uh, comment on this. I usually don't talk a lot about the art, but uh, there is a full-page illustration on page 46 that kicks off this chapter. And yet again, we see artist Langdon Foss saying, I really like the Appleseed manga from Japan. I just really, really like it. So, okay, Langdon. In this book, they talk about how the, in the past, the DEI, Digital Enhancement uh, Implant Interface, uh, that, was, that was something that basically gave the top leadership of the convention the ability to directly control and make miserable the uh, lower level servants of Iteration X. And so in this book, we get the advanced DEI, which uh, is a very useful tool and it has no, uh, you know, no side effects, no uh, n drawbacks. It, it, there's no one controlling you if you have one implanted. You just have a really nifty computer in your head. And some people would say, well, that's a, a dramatic departure from the first two editions. It is, but there's really a reason behind it. The DEI is really what the changes in Iteration X uh, center around. In the beginning, the convention was a dehumanizing, villainous group. And they showed that to the reader of the first convention book by saying, look, they even treat their own members uh, as uh, you know, miserable servants. And you know, they must be bad. 
In fact, they were so bad that you wondered how long a group like that could effectively function. But leaving that aside for a moment, in this new iteration of Iteration X uh, for Revised Edition, they are no longer a villainous group. They are a player character option and have been for a while uh, at this point. And so the DEI has to change. No one wants to have a player character where unnamed NPCs far away can tell you what to do and you have no say in the matter. It doesn't really work for player characters. So they said, okay, we need to update the DEI. Now it's a very helpful nifty computer and uh, it's not something you're going to be afraid to put into your character's head. I thought breaking up the time motion managers into time motion managers and the macro engineers was a, a very good idea. Uh, I thought that group did too much. They had too much under their umbrella in, in the previous edition. And so this is something that I would actually like to retcon into you know, the earliest times for, for Iteration X. It, it makes so much sense. I also really admire how they did it because they took the, uh, the weapons, the vehicles, chemistry, you know, uh, material science, et cetera, and they pushed that off to the macro technicians. But the time motion managers, they retained the computers. And that really makes sense because not only the design of computer, you know, individual computers that one person uses, but also computer systems, computer networks, theories of how to implement them and design them. This is tied to so many uh, disciplines and, and projects uh, going into the future that it really makes sense for the people who are planning large complicated systems to hold on to the tools to plan large complicated systems going forward. So this edition of Iteration X, they really frowned on cybernetics, which was a little too big of a change for me. Uh, cybernetics and you know melding man and machine was, was so much a central part of the the ideas behind Iteration X from their inception that uh, to see that frowned upon in this book is, for me, it, it like takes a lot of character away from Iteration X. And not only that, but there is, I think, an innate psychological impact of having to face an opponent that looks like a regular person, but you know isn't. There, there, there's something going on there in, in a narrative sense where you, the player characters see the big guy at the end of the alley and they're like, that is a terrifying machine that has no humanity in it. It has no sympathy. There's no common feeling. It's going to come after me and there's nothing I can do about it. And then all the sleepers standing around the player characters are like, what? It's some guy. Well, what's your problem? What I found perplexing, actually, was in this book, they say that powered armor suits are coincidental, but cyborgs are vulgar. And it really seems to me, no matter which edition of Mage I want to emphasize, it really seems to be the other way around. A cyborg that looks like a regular person, that's pretty coincidental. But a large powered armor suit, that's a really a science fiction thing. This book was written in 2001. Now we're at 2021, and powered armor suits are still really science fiction. I know there's some videos on YouTube of people who are developing them and starting to work with them. Yeah, I think it's very interesting technology, and I'm behind that. But really, to the common man, if you were to see something like that walking down the street, that is very much uh, science fiction and not everyday life. So I, I, as a storyteller, I think it's bending things just a little too far to say, oh, yeah, that powered armor suit, that's coincidental. That's not a problem. No, that's kind of a problem. Yeah, the, the line for cybernetics has moved around a lot over time, both in our reality as well as in Mage, which I find interesting. Like one of my favorite ones is in the first edition, they introduced the idea of the Cybertooth Tiger, which is just this robot tiger designed to work in outdoor environments where it will appear coincidental. And in M20, it's like cybernetic tigers, that'll never work. I'm like, hey buddy, that's the whole reason you introduced them. And it talks about how they are least effective in primal areas. I'm like, then what's the point? Which does suggest though that cybertooth tigers are running all over the cities and that like the Amazon is full of hit marks, which I'm also fine with, but just doesn't make any sense. Um <laughs> Uh, chapter three is entitled Chapter Three Modules, and a preview for my overall thought of the book, it is listed as Chapter Three as opposed to Cycle Three, and is referred to Cycle Three everywhere else. Uh, we get a bunch of characters. We are introduced to Dr. Peel, who is obsessed with intelligence and wants to create an artificial intelligence. The thing that gets me about this, she has mind five. She can do it. Like Iteration X keeps talking about making self-aware machines. You could just do that with Mind 5. That's the thing I don't get. Like if you've got a bunch of people with Mind 5 running around who want to do the thing, it's like, oh man, I wish I could do the thing. You could totally do the thing. Just do the thing. I got the impression that uh, it was because of uh, Paradox uh, breaking down what she made and she's trying to get around that. But again, that was what I brought to the table. It wasn't in there. 
we do get an update on the computer, which is introduced as a uh, as an NPC, which I liked, and that it was trying to upload itself to the digital web, basically the first god to make its way there. And I like that as an idea. It makes super sense because spirits are being kept out of reality, more or less, like very potent spirits are generally uh, kept out, which kind of gave me the idea that if demons wanted into reality, they could go through the digital web, which gives us canonical cyber demons. It mentions that during the Avatar storm, a number of its members were Gilgouled, and I'm like, interesting. We get vague references to things like that happening, but we never get any mechanical information about it, which I would have liked. Like, were, were it people in transit? How, how did that happen? Uh, that it became erratic, that it can be visited by younger members, which again, I think is just a reference to the Avatar Storm tending to be quite punishing to people with high permanent paradox, and that it's instead of being this machine realm that people visited to, to lay prostrate before it, it is trying to create its own world, and that all of its denizens are now now uh, interconnected uh, with the computer. And now it is that type of uh, cyborg omnipresence that it was kind of alluded to in previous books. Mentions that as a monoconvention troop, um, I'm surprised it kind of had anything here because it was like, you're the technocrats. That's the easiest possible thing to run, <laughs> run a chronicle for. You have a boss. They give you a mission. You do the mission. Plot unfolds. But they mentioned that uh, having the statisticians... Uh, come up with problems to solve where where they will have a handler or a higher level uh, person who says this is the thing that we're going to deal with and that one of the keys there is to create a power dynamic to have each person in the group kind of have their respective roles or their area of expertise and to say what does it look like when there is strife within a group we then get a sample amalgam. We, we get a sample group of iterators called Department 37. It consists of a Chicago office, which covers everything from Canada to Missouri, which makes me wonder what, what happens at Missouri, that they have 11 licensed agents, of which five are in Chicago. They went against orders and investigated internal corruption, and then the computer tried to cut them off. The leader was going to be canned until they lost contact during the Avatar Storm, which I like as an idea. It kind of makes mention of what's happening in Orpheus and Hunter's, the rise in supernatural activity dealing with the risen dead and spirits. It makes mention to the Week of Nightmares and how they participated in putting down uh, whatever rose up in Bangladesh and that the Avatar Storm kind of reset their relations with things and now they are figuring out how they want to go forward. We get two character sheets for its members and then we get a, a legend section. The computer is brought up a third time, this time trying to create a vast hive mind of all of its denizens, that they want to get a hold of a hunter to figure out what they're doing, that they're still pursuing artificial intelligences and trying to find a stable way to do it. You could just do it with my five! Anyway, and then it goes through a whole bunch of wonders. And uh, this is kind of an essential gear section, for lack of any uh, a better term. We don't get a lot of crazy weird things comparatively, but there are a lot of good practical devices that I think an iterator would likely need to do. It goes into detail on what the current advanced DEI looks like, Along with that, we get the Mind's Eye Theater rule for each of those, which is kind of useful because it also gives you a narrative reason to use them. Like it'll mention, hey, here's a one-sentence description for the Mind's Eye Theater version. I kind of like the way they present it like uh, LARPers are like dumber or something. We're like, here's the slimmed down, simple way of explaining what this thing does for LARPers. And I'm like, hey, buddy, I'm not even a LARPer and I'm offended. We get information on medical nanomachines. I thought it was a typo, but medicine kind of works as a word. I'm... I'm looking at you, John Sneed. We get a whole bunch of information on the Allenson hard suits. They're they're pretty great. <laughs> you just go around beating up people in them. It's it's super. If you want to have a cyborg beat them up, this is this is your way to do it. Uh, it gives you a whole bunch of modules, uh, things you can add, plasma cannons, and it's like plasma cannons are always vulgar. I'm like, man, <laughs> I want a coincidental plasma cannon. It talks about how the, the system of quintessence that it uses, how premium planing works, propulsion units, how to, how to take it underwater, your taser gloves, all sorts of things that your your hard suit can have. It makes mention that it fits nicely under a trench coat. And then we get some some supplemental devices. There's a whole section on how to, how to build your Jaeger or your little mech. It talks about some other devices. And again, these are tend to be very much on the practical side, sensor glasses, uh, a machine that can make perfect copies of what people's faces look like, various implants that you can get, uh, the world's greatest USB port, an overworld map, the ability to drink unending amounts without uh, it causing a problem because you have a special like mechanical liver. And then we get to the valued operative section, which is uh, just some character templates. And there are uh, a bunch of these. 
most of them were straightforward things that you would expect. The uh, the professor, the artificial intelligence researcher, who is like too gently caressing a computer computer monitor. The social scientist section I thought was interesting because the quote was, "There's a dangerous unknown factor operating in Compton and Watson, the neighborhoods of Los Angeles." I'm like, I think that's racist. One that kind of goes off a little bit more called the performance artist, who talks about someone who works in the PR division of Iteration X, trying to advance sleepers acceptance of technology which sounds like a great job where it's like it's like you are a cyborg hitman and need to constantly fight with werewolves you will be engaged in a deadly game of cat and also cat on the digital web you need to go to burning man this was a a really nice chapter for me there were a lot of goodies in here personnel section we get uh, amanda peel and the computer with a capital c i was a little uh, unsure about this It, it felt like they were using it to show about how the old leadership was bad, but the new leadership is good. It seemed strange to me because Amanda Peel is like, if you read through her description, she's like a nearly perfect person. And then you read about the computer and it's the perfect villain. And so that was that was a little odd to me. I was like, oh, the old is all really bad, but the new is all really, really good. Maybe that's just me seeing that, but uh, certainly got that impression. They give us more background information about the computer. And actually, I thought it was kind of sad how they chose the most obvious option for the computer. In the past, they had it mysterious. It was like, something is up with the computer. I wonder what it is. And storytellers were supposed to work it out on their own, which I, I thought was cool. Now they're saying, no, we're going to tell you what the backstory is. And it's like the most obvious choice. There was a umbral, umbrood spirit that inhabited the machinery of the computer and passed itself off as an artificial intelligence. So yeah, I think cool stories could be written around that, but it is kind of interesting how they chose the most, like the default setting, and they said, yeah, that's yep. it. Just, just. Also, they actually describe the image of the computer, like where it's, it's physically housed. If a, if a person was standing at that spot, what would they see? And oh my gosh, it, it's basically like a, a big stack of computery parts in this big empty room, and it's surrounded by cyborg soldiers and it's like dude this was a tired stereotype in 1960s sci-fi novels the sample amalgam or they call it sample cabal but uh, the sample group of iterators i thought was really really good I've, I've seen a number of tradition books so far where they get to the sample cabal and you're like yeah i don't really care but this time it was plausible it was versatile it was interesting i saw uh, story hooks here i saw a group that i would like to use either uh, to introduce it to my player characters if they were iterators or to use it as NPCs, whether good guys or bad guys. I really like this sample amalgam. I, I would want to put it in my games. Very high thumbs up for that one. I like their advanced DEI. Now, of course, as I said, they had the task in this book of, of having a DEI, but making it the, the kinder, gentler DEI. But they did a really good job. They said, look, you can take these merits from, that are already published in core mage books, uh, put basically put them together. It has these weaknesses. It has these strengths. This is how you handle botches. It's like, this is, this is great. I would love to use something like this. Uh, again, they say that powered armor suits are coincidental. I'm not sure I agree with that. But I do like the hard suits. They give two sample hard suits, and they basically use them as templates. They say, look, the, there's the light one and the heavy one. The light one has three spaces for different systems. Um, the heavy one has five spaces to put systems into. It was really very well done. Now, back in the day, I played a lot of uh, Mekton role-playing game from Artel Sorian, and that's kind of how they set up their giant robot design system because you know, it's a role-playing game about pilots who pilot giant robots and so you're supposed to design the giant robots so it was familiar to me but also it, it was greatly simplified from you know that role-playing game i like this template system i think this is very handy it's it's very intuitive um i think this is a great thing to put in front of storytellers and say look even if the npcs are using them this is how you can get the hard suit that you want without starting from scratch so Thumbs up for that one, definitely. The digital interface armband is supposed to be the workaround. If you don't want any cybernetic implants, but you want all the benefits of them, you put on the digital interface armband and you're just as good. And I say, no, no, no. Look, with implants, the person is taking a risk. You know, they have this technology that they cannot easily take out. They cannot totally switch it off without dire consequences. And so they're, they're taking a risk. There could be someone else who has the secret technology to manipulate their interface. There could be a tradition mage who knows a rote to attack people who have implants. I mean, you know, if you're going to take the, the, the risk, then you should have some benefits from that. And also, it is inside your body. So connecting quickly and easily to your mind 
Makes sense. It is literally connected to your mind. But to put on this armband with, with no hypodermic needle that goes into your nervous system and just say, yeah, it's just as good. It's like, no, as a, as a storyteller, I would say, no, it is not just as good. We, we, you can't have all the benefits uh, and none of the risks of an implant without having an actual implant. Yeah, one of the things that it raises mechanically is the uh, the ADEI is also a six-point wonder. It, it is something that costs something in character creation, so it needs to have a benefit to it. But yeah, it gets into a problem of like, so do we have a group where everyone is running around with a six-point wonder? It's kind of like the incredulity I had when we were talking about the enchanted Coke machines in Dragons of the East, where you work oh, backwards yeah. and you do the math, and you're like, that's 10 billion points of quintessence in Kyoto alone. <laughs> you're like, this is like that. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, I like the idea that it's like, well, you've got a hole in your head. That makes it real easy to hack you, so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's put that one out there. Uh, the templates in this book were, I thought, way too long and way too detailed. I mean, they shrunk it down to a smaller typeface so they could like pack in all of this uh, detailed background for a, a character that is basically not a character. It's a template. The character does not have a name. This is not actually an NPC. This is an idea for a possible mm-hmm. player character. They had all this yeah. detailed <laughs> stuff. It was too long. However, I will say that the templates in this book were very well connected to the systems introduced in this book. And, and that, I thought, was very intelligent and very useful. They, they actually showed how a person who was doing this kind of role in Iteration X would want to have this implant and this you know, weapon off the list we get in Chapter 3. And so, so connecting the systems and the templates, I thought, was, was very intelligent, very well done. But I got to say, the last template was the performance artist. And it, I just don't feel like this fits, okay? I know that's personal opinion, but I'm going to say it. I really don't think it fits. Whether we're talking about the uh, previous portrayals of Iteration X or the current one, someone who goes on stage and makes a flashy light show and signs autographs for fans afterwards, no one in Iteration X is going to say, yes, this person is doing useful work. It's like, I think everybody... You know, older, new iterators are going to look at this and say, this looks like a prima donna. Uh, This is an entertainer, not a worker. We're not crazy about this person. So that one just stuck out to me. Then we get the epilogue, which is uh, the real ascension was the friends we made along the way, where they... (laughs) Where, where they talk about introducing these new hard suits and some guy being like, well, maybe we shouldn't allow China to have 2 billion people in it. One, China doesn't have 2 billion people. Two, yeah, it's like this is just going to cause an arms escalation. I'm like, literally everything you do does. And now you're having the moral quandary over it at this stage in the project. And it ends with, why don't we all get a beer? Screw the computer. And then it ends with the remarkably menacing meanwhile somewhere in louisiana an expert system designed to catalog human responses to crises filed away the conversation and adjusted some ancillary statistics of the timetable ever so slightly and i'm like that is the best sentence to end an iteration x book on that is humanly possible i tip my hat to you um (laughs) but yeah it was just like uh, these two characters we've been following suddenly get a case of the feels at the end and i'm like this is this is too much of a of a of a touchy feely technocracy. What did you think about it? it? Seemed like the purpose of the epilogue was to demonstrate to the reader that the new iteration X is more um, responsible and moral and good than the old iteration X. But the way that they wanted to communicate, it, I thought was not effective. They basically said, hey, look, this powered armor suit that we're uh, testing, it's, it's working really well. Why it's its time to you know sign off and say testing is done and release it to the world. And they say, no, let's not release it to the world. People are going to do bad things with it. And it's like, well, okay. Uh, they, and they specifically say in here, the old leadership would just finish things and then just release it to the world. And it's like kind of interesting how this sort of hints at a, a new kind of elitism, because it, it seems like if, if I'm reading this right, it seems like the old leadership of Iteration X had kind of a positive view of humanity. It's like, look, let's give them more technology. It will make their lives better. They, may, they will, of course, will do some bad things with it. But in the end, it will be for the better. And so it's like these new younger guys are saying, hey, if we just give them cool toys, they'll just break them and, and hurt each other. So we should keep it all to ourselves. It's like, yeah, it seems like the newer leadership has a more negative view of humanity than the old leadership did, but I don't think that was their intention when they were writing it. It just came across that way to me. If we give it, these mortals are going to kill each other with it. That's our job. Hey, we but. develop, uh, it's, it says in here, we develop plasma cannons and uh, bombs and explosives, but you know, if we give them to the sleepers, they're just going to use them. It's like, well, then why are you making them? 
overall, I have my, my, my grand list of errors. They spelled Krav Maga as Krav Magda, which I thought was kind of interesting. They talk about the world's biggest tactical nuke, which is fundamentally a contradiction. The goal of a tactical nuclear device is to have it to be quite small to open up a breach in the battlefield and then go through. Large nuclear devices are quite easy. An explosion at L4, the fourth Lagrange point, would stay there. It's a stable Lagrange point, so I don't know why you're worried. Uh, chapter 3 should have been Cycle 3, and there are not 2 billion people in China. Also, I really hated all the sections that were narrated by the virtual adept guy. It was just so grating. Like the history section, he was just trying so hard to be cool. And I'm like, you're not, buddy. You're a console jockey who joined the cyborgs. Like, I understand what you're trying. It just sounded very one-y. It just sounded, it sounded very much like somebody wanting to try and sound cool. And it was just grating. It was violently difficult for me to get through those sections. And it is, in some cases, it is flat out offensive. I did like the idea of the machine cult, though, that is woven through, that there is this group within the iterators. And I would have liked kind of some information on that in the same way that the other groups, we get the key factions. Like when we do a tradition book, we get both the key factions as well as some of the other groups. I think some information on the machine cults and maybe the atomists or what have you would have been uh, interesting. But on the whole, I was quite pleased with the book. Um, I, I look forward to, to reading the rest of the convention books at like the end of the year, I think. Are we doing those before or after Ascension? I revised the timetable. They were released far I mean, long after Ascension, so I think it's more appropriate to look at them in the order released. Okay, cool. So what did you think about the book overall, Adam? Looking at the book as a whole, um, yeah, you mentioned the Lagrange point four or L4 uh, being a little ridiculous. They tried to introduce that as like a chilling uh, plot hook where anything that happens in the L4 point in space eventually um, as, you know, orbital mechanics uh, take their course, uh, the planet Earth will move through the space. It was continually moving through the space where L4 was previously. And so it, it, like, the idea is if they create some radiation or a cloud of bad nanomachines or whatever, then the Earth will like sweep through that space and pick it all up and it'll at attack humans. But yeah, your point is valid because it is a, a gravitationally secure point. And so anything that happens there the gravity of it will keep it on L4 and keep it moving in front of the planet Earth. And so they're supposed to spend a, send a chill down your spine. I'm reading it's like, nope, no chill. You guys botched this one. Yeah. <laughs> so. it, yeah. In fact, those two points are full of asteroids and other debris that Earth has picked up. There are two camps. They are known as the Trojan asteroids. Uh, I think it is the Trojans and the Achaeans. Get in there, the Iliad. Um. Yeah, astronomy is loaded with Greek and Greco-Roman references, but um, you mentioned the strong, uh, sarcastic or cynical tone of the uh, you know, former virtual adept who's supposed to be the narrator. That was heavier in, the, I, I guess, roughly the first uh, two-thirds of the book, but yeah, I, I totally agree. It was so sarcastic, it was so overwrought, so negative, that it was actually hard for me to read. Mm -hmm. It's like it, it's like um, I got the impression like someone was constantly whacking me with a bat or something. <laughs> it's like I, I don't enjoy this, and, and you know, it's like you think you're cool, but you're just like a downer. <laughs> I, I don't like this. This book was, as we mentioned, a radical transformation of the convention. Revised edition does that with many groups, but um, an additional factor on this is, as we mentioned, Iteration X is now a, a player character option, and it wasn't before. And in revised edition, the technocracy as a whole actually represents science and technology. And so if you have a villainous Iteration X, then in revised edition, you're kind of uh, saying that uh, technology is a bad thing, and that's not something that uh, most of us can agree with. So, yeah, there, there are kind of uh, obvious reasons for this radical transformation, but it was still interesting to see. Uh, the old theme of Iteration X was combining man and machine, and that was really um, a metaphor for the technocracy as a whole. At, at you know 1993, in the beginning of Mage, there was this idea that we we're going to totally embrace efficiency, order, predictability, and along with it, um, our notions of science and technology. And in the process, we're going to sacrifice a lot, but it's really worth it. And the undertone was, no, it's not worth it. This is a bad idea. And so that, that the metaphor for that was turning yourself into a cyborg. You put high-tech into your body. You look and feel different than you did before, but you're doing it because you're totally committed to this ideal. And in the process, 
faceless, nameless leaders who are far away are going to have a very strong influence on you and manipulate you, and isn't that sinister? And so here we have this new iteration X where, yeah, it's not sinister anymore. Now the focus is on using tools. And I guess I can kind of get behind that. I like that. It's just what I didn't like about the book was they really, really abstract the idea of tools. It's like tools can be anything. The human body is a tool. Social organization is a tool. Every word you can put in a sentence is is a tool. And so... I think one of the reasons they did this was to make it so that you can define your iteration X player character any way you like. You can make any sort of a player character you want, and it's going to fit because everything is tools after all. In the process of of so drastically abstracting the idea of tools, the convention, you know, the the group of technocrats, they lose a lot of their character. And so that was something I, I did not enjoy so much. Hit marks are now an embarrassment and have to go. That was a very different take on things. I've talked to a lot of mage fans, and, and regardless of whether or not they want to make the technocracy noble or villains, everybody loves the hit mark. It's it's cool. Yeah, wizard uh, versus it, hit mark is the one sentence pitch for mage. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, it's cool. It's neat. I mean, I okay, I admit I'm an older guy, but uh, back in the day when... Um, uh, Terminator 1 movie came out with Arnold Schwarzenegger, there was a real psychological punch to that. He looks like a big, mean guy, but no, he is an advanced metal killing machine that you cannot stop with guns and baseball bats and knives. And other people can't see that, but you know that, and he's after you. And there was a real punch to this. And uh, so hit marks, I think, have a very viable role in any edition of Mage. But the people writing this book are like, oh, how dumb, let's just write those out. So that was odd to see. For me personally, most of the things I liked about Iteration X were taken out in this book. And so it's hard for me to get behind this book and say that I really like it. It's such a different view of Iteration X that it's jarring for me. But on the other hand, they have a lot of good systems, rules, and, and, and ideas in this book. There are times when I want to start a chronicle and have a more positive or noble portrayal of the technocracy. And this book gives me a lot of the tools I want to do that. Uh, as a mage fan, I, I can make up a lot of uh, NPCs and setting uh, detail on my own. I'm, I'm good with that. But when it comes to rules and systems, I really like to be able to lean on the published books to get that because that I'm weak in coming up with new things there. And this book was was just a boon for me. I just love it. The, uh, the advanced DEIs, the template system of approaching uh, powered armor suits, and many of the other implants and devices in here. I would just love to use this. It really helps me to show a positive technocracy, and not just Iteration X, so I love that. I guess the last point I had was there in the pre- previous two editions of Mage, there was this implication that in becoming a cyborg, you're, you're giving something up. You're making a fundamental sacrifice to do this. And this book dropped that implication. There's just the idea that, hey, you can get implants, you can become a cyborg, and it's fine. It's not really a problem. You can carry on with your life, and it's great. Don't worry about it. And, and for me, that was it's taking a lot out of Mage. It's, I like this idea that if, if you become a cyborg, this is a, a really drastic change, and you're really making a sacrifice. It better be worth it for you, and it might not be. And this book is like, hey, get some implants. It's cool. Go with it. In Revise, the technocracy still needs to fulfill the role as potential antagonist. I think that is something that people will still look to the book for, and I don't think the book gave that to us. I think Mm -hmm. a little bit more information on if you want to make them the bad guys, do it this way, which is interesting because otherwise revised is pretty good about giving a bunch of options of how to present something. And I'm kind of surprised that there wasn't a storyteller uh, section that was like technocrats as antagonists or iterators as enemies or areas where the technocracy and the traditions would run into each other or alternatively more information on how to run them as protagonists. For instance, the iterators against the Nefandi, or what have you, just kind of a list of um, uh, other current concerns. Well, I have a quote in the opening of the of the prelude. We get a section where the former adept is talking about why he left, and this is his statement. The adepts offered me a world where I could lie in bed all day with my brain hooked up to a giant video game where they would all be whizzes and my friends and my family would all just be players, all stuck in a game while my body fell in on itself, got rotten and died, and if I was lucky, I could be stuck playing their game even after that bullshit. Wow. (laughs) Take that. How do you Um, really feel? Yeah. And the pithy one-liner that I thought was kind of funny was when they said, as the syndicate has pointed out, a 100% efficient bureaucracy is paradoxical as all hell. And with that, what are we reading next, Adam? 
Next, we're swinging the pendulum all the way in the other direction. We're getting the dream speakers. <laughs> I mean, techno shamans are, are a thing. But yeah, yeah, they're kind of presented as kind of opposite yeah, ends okay. of the spectrum. That yeah. was probably an unfair <laughs> statement, but... <laughs> okay, uh, you, you want to take us out? This episode is thanks to executive producers uh, Joshua Golden, John Magnuson, Ira Grace, Richard Bat Brewster, Michael Parker, Christopher Phillips, Ilara J. Sunsern, Bryce Perry, William Martin, John Horton, William Connolly, Brandon Morrill, Andrew Katz, Jenna F. Andrew Edelstein, Chris Zack, Anders, and Justin. If you would like to become an executive producer for Mage the Podcast, we would certainly appreciate it, and it would help keep us bringing you episodes like this one. You would also become a part of our own council to discuss upcoming projects. The link in the show notes will get you started. If you have something to say, please contact us at magethepodcast at gmail.com with your questions, comments, or feedback. You can subscribe to Mage the Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and other aggregators. If you like the show, others might like it too. And if you leave a review for Mage the Podcast, it makes us more visible in their searches. If you follow us on Twitter, at Mage the Podcast, you'll see what we're up to today. We're also on the web at magethepodcast.com. You can listen to past episodes there and see the complete show notes that we prepare for you. Well, thanks everyone for listening. And until next time, truth until paradox, baby. Remember, everything's a tool, especially the people you don't get along with. Bye. <laughs> Okay, that was good. Thank you. (laughs) I have my moments.